Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Last week, Major League Baseball announced it would move the All-Star Game from Atlanta to Denver in protest of Georgia election administration legislation that would make the state's voter access more liberal than the pre-COVID-19 status quo. In the eyes of Democratic activist and former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, who, presaging the actions of another prominent Georgia election loser of a different political party, never formally conceded the legitimacy of her defeat to Governor Brian Kemp, this amounted to Jim Crow too, so the game had to go. For the record, Abrams denies encouraging a boycott. Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, previously best known as the architect of such crimes against the national pastime as the universal designated hitter and starting extra innings with the runner on second base, is only the latest corporate figure to push a left progressive social agenda from his perch as a 21st century captain of industry. Big philanthropy has long been a leftist bastion, and big business has increasingly deferred to left-wing activists through environmental, social, and corporate governance, ESG, investing. Joining me to discuss the rise of woke capitalism, the centralization of big philanthropy, and what can be done about them is Howard Husak, a senior executive fellow of the Philanthropy Roundtable. Uh, Howard, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your research for Philanthropy Roundtable? Well, I've, I've got a, a checkered past that has led me to a, a great organization. Uh, if for many years, I, I was, boy, I was a documentary filmmaker for public television. I worked at the Kennedy School of Government and Harvard. Then I was for many years at the Manhattan Institute as the research vice president. And recently I've migrated to the round table. I guess my uh, claim to fame for uh, this uh, podcast would be uh, a book 2015 called Philanthropy Under Fire, which kind of encapsulates some of the themes you just referred to. Uh, uh, and uh, a 2019 book called Who Killed Civil Society? Uh, the Rise of Big Government and the Decline of Bourgeois Norms, which is a defense of the values of philanthropy versus the values of social service programs. I guess, I guess, before, so, we, I guess before we move into uh, sort of some of the specifics, if, if you could just kind of outline the the sort of basic thesis of your 2019 book, uh, because I think that's going to be important uh, as we continue this discussion. Yeah, I, I what, what I did in the book was track historically the growth of social service programs as uh, funded and contracted for by government, by Washington, really, to the point that we've got something called the Administration for Children and Families spends $55 billion a year. That used to be a lot of money in Washington. I suppose it still is. Uh, and that the book talks about how it supplanted what had been private foster care, all, all sorts of private uh, values-based programs. And, the and key a lot of, to the book, I think- were local, And a lot of these were localized services. Very they local. Were, settlement, settlement houses are some of my ideals, very local helped immigrants in the early 20th century in ways that we still need today. But the key to the book is to understand that the rise of these social service programs is predicated on the idea that people make bad choices, but government can fix you, hmm. as opposed to the values of local philanthropically supported organizations, which stressed what I call in the book, the formative over the reformative. And that's really the central thesis of the this, book. This is... Uh, I think it's Jonah, Go you know, Jonah Goldberg always says, you know, that uh, uh, that every every generation civilization is invaded by 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 barbarians. We call them children. 
the the formative is you take these unformed children and you make them into honorable, respectable members of productive society, as opposed to letting them get to the time they turn 18 and then trying to fix what what grew naturally. Yeah, or which which grew through neglect. Mm. But yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I guess now kind of stepping back towards the what what baseball just did what why why would a big you know i mean major league baseball as a corporation is not particularly huge but as a brand it's it's a big deal why would a major brand take a headfirst dive into a partisan contro- into a what is a partisan controversy and a partisan controversy that was exacerbated by misleading statements by liberal activists well obviously uh no matter what you or i might think of what they did Commissioner Manfred thought it was in the interest of baseball. So just like the runner on second base. <laughs> yeah, he thought that he thinks that's in the interest of baseball. Uh, so it, we may gainsay him. And if, if he's accountable, he's accountable to the owners of the clubs. And if they don't like this decision, this is a corporation that seeks to to uh, maximize its profits, then they will discipline him. Uh, so. Uh, whether we think it's in the best interest of baseball in the long term, I happen to think alienating a large section of the fan base is probably not a smart idea, but he must have thought that. Hmm. And so, but, but, it, and, and this is all part of the sort of broader centralization and broader political disciplining of American life, which from the philosophic side, you have written on extensively. Well, I wrote an article for National Affairs. Uh, three or four years ago called The Rise of Quasi-Capitalism. And uh, I I think it presaged uh, ESG uh, standards, which you referenced. And uh, the the fundamental idea is that profit-making and and do-goodism as defined by interest groups can be merged. And so we're seeing that with woke corporations who are under pressure to demonstrate that they are responding to uh, ideals as enunciated by interest groups, most of which happen to be progressives. Mm. And so the idea that profit maximization can be merged with causes is what I call quasi-capitalism. And I think that it's it's really um, ascendant. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I think this is not a good thing for philanthropy because it's predicated on the idea that uh, we can somehow merge uh, profit-making and philanthropy, that philanthropy, you know, as Bernie Sanders said, I don't believe in charity, that philanthropy can be uh, overtaken, uh, by made by, redundant by, by capitalism properly disciplined. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then... Then and but then we look at philanthropy. So you got the Ford. You know, you uh, you wrote an article for the roundtable on Ford Foundation. Um, uh, they it was, and correct me if I'm wrong. Their president, uh, Darren Walker, Darren Walker, uh, was uh, was interviewed by 60 Minutes, and they were discussing among other things how the foundation was taking out enormous loans to up its uh, up its grant making, even though it's already sitting on. Uh, the most recent numbers that I looked at were from 2015, and they were $12 billion in assets. Yeah, I think it's up to $13 billion. 
Uh, right. And so by borrowing at zero interest rates or extremely low interest rates, that allows the foundation to avoid dipping into its endowment, into its principal. Uh, and so paying something back at a very low rate when it earns quite a bit of money on its endowment. So uh, it's, it's a clever way to increase its payout without reducing its the size of its yeah, of its underlying assets, right? Because because uh, so, the way the, the way a big the way a big foundation like Ford or like Open Society or on on the right much smaller Bradley, how they work is that you know some guy makes you know uh, makes a lot of money, uh, he creates a foundation, and we're going to assume because Ford is that it's a perpetual foundation that doesn't spend itself into non-existence. Uh, and then that pile of money is administered by professional managerial class that then uh, put that money in investments in the stock market and the bond markets uh, that then grow and then they make a payout of, you know, there's an IRS minimum payout, um, but they make a payout of from the assets of uh, of their endowment. Is that basically, that's basically how it works, right? Yeah, they have a minimum payout of 5%, but by the way, includes their overhead and expenses. So uh, it, it's that's that's part of it too. And and then, so their their continuation in existence is entirely, is not, maybe not entirely, but principally based on the growth and the continuation of that, uh, of those assets. So if, if Ford's taken out really, really, cheap loans that's basically artificially increasing their their spending base even as big as their spending base is right i mean they're they're uh, investing their assets in the capital markets uh i you know i think that they would say that they're investing in uh impact investing <clears throat> that's another term that's al current where you can merge causes and create some sort of a kinder and gentler capitalism and that you can predict what's good for society and what's not as good uh, by choosing the right investments. I, I suspect that they would talk about that or program related investments. Foundations talk about those too, which program again are designed to mitigate the ill effects of straight out uh, investment. Right. So it's it basically you're inv deliberately investing along you know, if you're a group like Ford, you're deliberately investing on ideological lines rather than, you know, asset maximization lines. Part, partly, anyhow, I, I think they would argue that they're going to merge those and that it can be done, that ESG investing can be just as remunerative. Uh, that remains to be seen, uh, but that would be their argument. Yes. Mm hmm. So now whenever I have a guest on to discuss Woke Capital, Big Philanthropy, um, you know, some previous episodes, we've had my colleague, Mike Hartman, late of the Bradley Foundation, uh, Steve Sukup, who just wrote a book on, uh, on Woke Capital, uh, and Naomi Schaefer Riley. Uh, I, always, I always ask this question, and that's what is to be done? Um, if we're trying to decentralize philanthropy, if we're trying to step back from this you know, big administrative quasi-state in New York. Uh, you know, how do we how do we decentralize it, and then how do we try uh, to get capital to get business, corporate America, back towards the center ground and away from you know immediate knee-jerk responses to whatever left of center activists want. 
Well, those are two quite separate questions, decentralizing uh, philanthropy and uh, steering or influencing business to take less political or less uh, left of center stands. I'll, I'll take the first question first, which is I, I happen to be cheered by the rise of donor advised funds, which you, now briefly, control, briefly explain you know, what donor advised funds are. Right. For those who might not so if, if you're a, a relatively small middle class, upper middle class donor, you can set up what amounts to your own kind of foundation uh, through Vanguard Charitable, Fidelity Charitable, the National Philanthropic Trust, Schwab Charitable. I, I am not paid by any of these people and I do not endorse any one of them, but they all allow you to create what amount to individual charitable accounts, just like individual retirement accounts. And one can donate to these accounts. Once funds are in there, you can't get them back. They can only be used for charitable giving. They appreciate just like Ford Foundation's endowment appreciates, and you can parcel it out uh, over time. So you may donate and maximize your tax, tax break during your high earning years, and then after retirement, parcel it out in the fullness of time when you have some time to reflect on the decision after those funds have appreciated just as foundation funds appreciate. And, this and is the fastest growing vehicle my understanding for is the, philanthropic giving in the country. And so it's a big change. And my understanding is that, you know, if let's say I gave money, I created a donor advised fund with one of these donor advised fund providers. Um, and I, or donors trust, I should not leave out donors trust. Yes. Um, you know, if I gave, if I created an account with one of these donor advised fund providers and I put some money in it and that money grew, I also right. don't have to pay taxes on that appreciation. Do I? No, because it's not your money. Right, right. Because I've already I've already donated it. <laughs> and you've already gotten a tax deduction for it if you're an itemizer of tax returns. Mm. Um so and 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 the way that and so so you think that kind of expand that the just their expansion, that their existence, just getting more people in the game, uh, that that helps do the some of the decentralization? Oh, definitely. I mean, they're they're in the Tens of billions of dollars in essence are now housed in these donor advised funds collectively, and they're controlled by, you know, hundreds of thousands of individual donors. So by definition, that's the democratization of of uh, charitable giving and uh, asset appreciation of such assets. Well, I'm glad to hear a positive answer to one of my questions. <laughs> um, so I mean, it on. doesn't it doesn't do anything about the Ford Foundation, which. Uh, is, is set up in perpetuity and is famously detached from the original uh, uh, political vision of Henry Ford, the second who started it, or the MacArthur Foundation, which is detached from the uh, the uh, vision of John T. and Catherine T. MacArthur, uh, who were supporters of President Nixon. So uh, as long as perpetuity is permitted by, by uh, law, tax law, uh, then these quasi-accountable, really unaccountable, uh, self-perpetuating boards will control large amounts of capital. Mm -hmm. And then, so again, moving on to, I guess, capital. So, you know, what levers do we have to sort of nudge corporate America back, even if not, you know, politically to the center ground, even if just not to knee-jerk the way that 
obviously Major League Baseball has done recently, but that other companies have done as well. Well, I saw that Dan Henninger in the Wall Street Journal this morning uh, uh, urged that we boycott baseball. And of course, that's that's one answer is that you 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 buy your chicken fillets from Chick-fil-A rather than from Burger King. Or I, I don't know, the Burger King has become political, but Chick-fil-A is famously a, a culturally conservative institution, closes on Sunday. So one could pick and choose one's uh, the way one disperses one's own funds. Mm. You know, I, I have to say, you know, that was a slogan of the left in, in yeah, the that, 60s. That's always the that's personal never, is political. Right. And I'm not keen so, to politicize every aspect of my life, but that would be an answer. Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, it, it, would you say it's unfortunately the only answer anyone's thought of to this point? <laughs> yeah, it was to fight fire with fire. Uh, but, uh, you know, w w things change. So people talk about the, 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 um, strongly left of center education in the liberal arts colleges. That's an understatement. Uh, but we're seeing enrollment in the liberal arts decline because of that. Mm -hmm. So there is a disciplining effect of the market. Uh, so it, it's possible that we see Hollywood movies uh, that get that bomb because their message is not really uh, welcome. Right. Their or their message overwhelms the overwhelms the storytelling. Yeah. So uh, people do vote with their with their dollars. And over time, uh, we might see that. I, I do think, you know, I remember uh, some years ago, uh, uh, the uh, the investor and philanthropist Phil Anschutz ran supported a series of uh, public service ads, I guess you'd call them on television about uh, people. I think the cliche is paying it forward. I'm not a fan of that. But, you know, of, of traditional values mm -hmm. uh, illustrated through stories, I thought they were very effective. And so uh, there, there may be ways of storytelling that are not over the top, uh, heavy handed that can start to change the culture, too. Well, that's uh, well, I guess we'll, I guess we'll end on at least a somewhat, you know, in a somewhat upbeat note. Uh, Howard Husak, thank you again for joining us. That is our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you next week.